0: When we open the book of Zephaniah, we are transported back in time to the 600s BC. We're transported back to ancient Jerusalem, to the days of the good King Josiah. Josiah came to the throne at age eight, and he reigned for 31 years. Before his reign began, Judah had sunk into deep idolatry and apostasy under wicked King during Josiah's reign, in fact, in the 18th year of his reign as king, the book of Deuteronomy, which had been lost, was found. And this rediscovery of the law sparked a reformation in the land. King Josiah drove out the idolatry. He restored true worship. Uh, Josiah had actually started making reforms before the book of the law was rediscovered. But afterwards, he intensified his reforms, leading the people in repentance before the Lord. He was a good king. Zephaniah likely prophesied during the early part of Josiah's reign. Uh, And it it was probably Zephaniah's threats of coming wrath, Zephaniah's threats of a coming judgment, that spurred Josiah on in his work of reforming the nation. And the judgments Zephaniah described were at least delayed for a bit because of the reforms that Josiah made. What is this book of Josiah about? Uh, This book Zephaniah. Uh, What's this book Zephaniah about? Zephaniah announces the coming day of the Lord people of Judah thought that the day of the Lord would bring great blessing to them. Zephaniah says it will not be a day of deliverance. It will be a day of doom. It will be a day of wrath rather than a blessing. Indeed, it will be a day of wrath not only for Jerusalem, but for the nations all around. This is Zephaniah's message. The day of the Lord is coming. Prepare yourself Judgment will start with the people of God and with the house of God, but it will not end there. The Gentile nations are subject to this judgment as well. All peoples, nations, ethnicities, and races will be judged. These judgments that Zephaniah has in view are historical judgments, judgments that will take place in history. This has to do with the rising and falling of nations and empires, But these historical judgments are described in such totalizing language that there can be no question that the judgments Zephaniah describes are really a foreshadowing, a a type and a shadow of the judgment that is still to come at the last day. We're going to spend our Advent this year with the prophet Zephaniah. We'll keep company with Zephaniah during this Advent season. Zephaniah tells us what happens when the Lord comes to his people. And that's really what Advent is all about, the Lord coming to his people. It's all about the coming of the Lord, the Advent of the Lord. That's what Zephaniah is about as well. So today we're going to look at chapter 1 into the first few verses of chapter 2. And I want us to look at three aspects of this prophecy this morning, three aspects of this passage we want to examine this morning. First, the result of the judgment. Second, the reasons for the judgment. And then third, the rescue from the judgment. So the results, the reason, and the rescue from the judgment. So first, let's talk about the result. This is really where Zephaniah begins. But before we get to the message of Zephaniah, let's meet the man Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah. Before we hear what he has to say, let's find out who he is. Uh, The book opens, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah. uh, That tells us right away that Zephaniah is a prophet, and it tells us this prophecy will share in all of the perfections. This prophecy comes to us with all of the perfections and authority of God himself. This prophecy must be received as God's word. This is God's word Zephaniah is delivering. He will be God's mouthpiece, God's scribe, God's spokesman. The name Zephaniah means God hides, and that's going to be very significant as we work our way through the book. Uh, In a way, his name becomes an embodiment of a huge aspect of his message. Then we're given Zephaniah's family tree, and this is very interesting. Anytime the Bible includes genealogical information like this, it's always there for a reason. It's not just filler. Uh, There are details here that are really important. I want to point out a couple of them. He is said here to be the son of Cushy. Cushy means Ethiopian. Uh, To be a Cushite is to be an Ethiopian. Uh, This means that he is the son of an Ethiopian. Uh, Ethiopia, of course, is in North Africa. And so apparently a God-fearing Ethiopian man migrated to Israel and married into a Jewish family. Something not totally unheard of. We see other places in scripture where Gentiles come to be a part of Israel. And so it happens here with this Ethiopian man, this Cushite man who becomes Zephaniah's father. So Zephaniah descends from an inter-ethnic marriage. Uh, he is the son of an Ethiopian father who has come to live in Israel. And it's really interesting. His father comes from Cush, from the land of Ethiopia. His prophecy is going to speak to the land of Cush to the land of Ethiopia. It's going to speak both of Cush's destruction and of Cush's restoration in chapters 2 and 3. Going further back into his family history, we find he is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, a major figure in Jewish history. So Zephaniah not only has Gentile blood in his veins, he has royal blood in his veins, and this is really interesting because he's going to speak not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles, including Cush, the land of his father, and he's also he's got royal blood in his veins, as well as Gentile blood, he's going to speak to the royal house quite a bit, and so of course, having royal blood in his veins would uh, perhaps give him some traction as he speaks to the royal house, as uh, parts of his prophecy are directed specifically to other members of the royal family in Judah. Then we have the timestamp for this prophecy. The word of the Lord came to him in the days of Josiah. And then the prophet describes what the judgment will be like. And the way to sum this up is to say the coming judgment will be a decreation. Redemption in the Bible is often presented to us as a new creation. We just sung about God finishing his new creation in us. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, If any man is in Christ, behold, a new creation. Redemption is often described in new creation terms, and so judgment in the Bible is often described as a decreation. And that's how Zephaniah presents this coming judgment. Now, Jeff, Zephaniah is not saying here that the world will be physically decreated, that the physical creation will be undone. He's talking, rather, about a social De-creation, the social order, their world, their social and covenantal world will come undone. Their world will fall apart. That's really what this language describes. This language actually has a, co- a lot in common with Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is a contemporary of Zephaniah. They're both prophesying about many of the same things. When Jeremiah goes to describe the destruction of the temple and the city in Jerusalem, He says in chapter 4, he says, I looked upon the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. Of course, that language of the earth being without form and void, that takes us right back to the beginning of Genesis 1, and it means creation is coming undone. But Jeremiah is using that language to describe judgment on Jerusalem. It's the world centered around Jerusalem that's going to become undone, that's going to be decreated. When the earth was without form and void, In the beginning, that's a picture of what Jerusalem will be like after this judgment is complete. Jerusalem will be without form and void. At the beginning of Zephaniah's prophecy, God says he will gather everything up and he will sweep everything away. He will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. A lot of this is reminiscent of the flood account in Genesis chapter six, where God sweeps away everything on the face of the earth. So it echoes the creation account. It also echoes the flood account. In the creation account in Genesis chapter one, the earth is empty and God fills it. Now you've got a a, a full earth and God's going to empty it. He's going to sweep everything away from the face of the earth. God says, I will sweep away man, man, and beast. Go back to day six of the creation account in Genesis chapter one, the beasts are made first on day six, and then later that day man is created. Well, in this decreation, the order is reversed. Man and then beast will be gathered and swept away. God will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. And again, this is a reversal. You go back to Genesis one, the fish are created, and then the birds, here the order is flipped. As God takes them away. So clearly this is Genesis 1 in reverse. Skip down to verse 10. We find the judgment landing on the city of Jerusalem. And different parts of the city are identified. The fish gate and the second quarter and the hills. These are the herbs and the suburbs of the city that will be destroyed Uh, So judgment is coming for Jerusalem. The city is going to be decreated. When you get into chapter 2, we didn't read this far into it, but when you get into chapter 2, you find the Gentile nations are going to be judged too. The Canaanites, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Cushites, the Ethiopians, which again is interesting given Zephaniah's heritage. The Assyrians will be judged. They are the great empire of the day. All will be judged. None are exempt. This judgment begins in Jerusalem, but then it stretches out from Jerusalem in all directions, north, south, east, and west, all points of the compass. The judgment goes out in all directions. Zephaniah is making it clear. No person, no city, no nation will be exempt from the searching spotlight of God's judgments. Another example of this judgment as a decreation is found in chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, it's very interesting that this verse is an echo of something we find in the book of Deuteronomy. Of course, again, that is the book that was rediscovered during Zephaniah's ministry and during Josiah's reign. So whether Zephaniah is prophesying just before the book of Deuteronomy is rediscovered or just after, that doesn't matter so much. But he echoes the language of Deuteronomy, which, of course, people would immediately identify as they're hearing the book of Deuteronomy read now for the first time in generation. In Deuteronomy, Moses describes the blessings that await Israel in the promised land. Remember, when Deuteronomy is written, Deuteronomy is basically a sermon from Moses to the people just before they enter the promised land. And he's describing for them the blessings that await as they take possession of the land. When Israel enters the land God is giving them, Deuteronomy 6 says, They will enjoy houses they did not build, wells they did not dig, vineyards they did not plant. But now in the coming judgment, Zephaniah says, your goods will be plundered. Your houses will be laid to waste. He says, you will build a house, but you won't inhabit it. You will plant vineyards, but you won't drink the wine. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. They took the wealthy nation of Egypt with them. Now their goods are going to be plundered. When they entered into the land, when they conquered the land, they were going to dwell in houses they didn't build, and they were going to enjoy the fruit of vineyards they didn't plant, now all that's being reversed. In Deuteronomy, they enjoy houses they didn't build and vineyards they didn't plant. In Zephaniah says they won't enjoy houses they have built and they won't enjoy vineyards they have planted. Their labor will be in vain because of this coming judgment. The nation is going to be decreated. The nation is going to be torn apart, of, torn apart at the seams. It will be emptied of all blessing. The exodus and the conquest and the temple building will all be reversed. Now, there's a lot more to be said here. Later in the book, we'll see further results of this coming judgment that Zephaniah threatens. Uh, But I just want to say one more thing here before we move on from this section. Zephaniah calls this coming day of judgment the Lord's day or the day of the Lord. A lot of other prophets use that same terminology. You find references to the day of the Lord in Amos and in Joel and in other places. Zephaniah calls it the day of the Lord in seven and one fourteen, And he goes on from there. He's just constantly referring to that day or the great day or the day of anger or a day of ruin and devastation. Chapter 1 verses 14 to 18 describe this day, this coming day of the Lord in terrifying terms. The original day of the Lord is found, again, back in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, each creation day, each day of the creation week can be considered a day of the Lord and is a picture of what the day of the Lord means. And so think about this. In Genesis chapter 1, what happens? The days move from evening to morning. They move from darkness to light. And in the light, God comes and he makes a judgment And each day, except for the second day of the creation week, he declares what he has made good. So the movement is from darkness to light, and in the light, God comes and makes a judgment. His light exposes what is there, and God makes a declaration. God makes a judgment. Now, after the fall, when the light of God's judgment comes, he often has to declare what he sees as not good. Because the world is now fallen. There is now sin in God's good creation but it's really important to understand this paradigm of the day of the lord this movement from darkness to light culminating in god's judgment culminating in god making a declaration that's really a picture of all of history it's really the pattern of history think of it this way the whole old covenant before jesus comes is a period of relative Darkness. But when Jesus comes, we read about this in John chapter 3, the gospel lesson that's all over the place in the New Testament. When Jesus comes, that's the coming of the light. The light of the world has now arrived. The light begins to shine into the world in history. And what happens when God's light shines? God makes a judgment, God makes a declaration. That's the pattern in the book of Zephaniah as well. We're going to move from darkness to light, and it's going to culminate in a judgment that separates good from evil. God makes a declaration. He makes a distinction. He makes a judgment. In fact, here in verse 12, the Lord says, He will search Jerusalem with lamps. God will send out His light through the city of Jerusalem. The city has been in the dark, but now God's light is coming. God's light is going to shine on the city, exposing the city, so God can make a judgment over the city. His light is going to expose the wicked so they can be punished, and it's going to bring to light the righteous so they can be rescued. Now, that's the results. That's the results of the judgment. Again, we'll see more of the results of this coming judgment as we work our way through the book in coming weeks. But let's talk now about the reasons for the judgment, and this is very, very interesting. If this judgment is pending, if this sentence of judgment is hanging over Judah and over the other nations, why? Why are they being judged? Why is this terrible day of doom on the horizon? What sins are they being judged for? Zephaniah spends a lot of this book cataloging the sins of Judah of the people, taking inventory of their various sins, their various forms of idolatry. He talks about the sins of various groups. We're not going to pit on all of them this morning, but let me give you some of the highlights here. Maybe we should say hello since we're talking about sin and idolatry. What I really want you to see here is how relevant Zephaniah is. Zephaniah is speaking in the 600s BC, but he can just as easily be speaking to 21st century America. This prophecy is incredibly relevant. It looks like this ancient prophecy is ripped from our modern day headlines. There's really nothing new under the sun. Uh, the church has the same struggles, the nations lapse into the same forms of idolatry. You see that? And Zephaniah targets all different categories of people. He critiques the people and the princes. He critiques the prophets and the priests and the judges and the businessmen. Virtually every category of people, except for Josiah himself, because Josiah is righteous and he is seeking to lead the people in reform, so he seems to be exempted from this condemnation, from this critique. Every other category of people is weighed and found wanting. Josiah was seeking to lead the way in reformation, but the whole rest of the society seems utterly corrupt. Corruption is found everywhere. No institution could be trusted in Zephaniah's day. Leaders in church and state and business, priests and prophets and judges and merchants are all singled out in this book for their rebellion, their corruption, their idolatry. It is comprehensive corruption leading to comprehensive judgment. they Cultural, political, and spiritual leaders are all complicit in this rebellion against the true God. Now, let's unpack some of the details here. This is where it gets really interesting. Pick up in verse 4. God says he will cut off the remnants of Baal. Baal was a pagan deity. God is saying here he's going to cut off the worshipers of Baal. This is something that Josiah actually does do. He brings judgment against the worshipers of Baal. Uh, Who is Baal? What what does it mean to worship Baal? As a deity, Baal stood for the forces and processes of nature. The ancient world did not have very many secular materialists like we have in our day, but Baalism comes very close uh, because Baalism is all about the forces of nature and the processes of nature. Baalism is really a form of nature worship. Today, People who worship the forces of nature would say, follow the science. They made science into their functional religion. In the ancient world, they would have said, follow the Baals. Follow Baal. They made Baal, the the forces and processes, processes of nature, into their God. Now, we might ask the people who are just following the science in our day how well that's serving them. Baalism is just ancient Scientism. It says nature is ultimate. The forces and processes of nature are ultimate. Matter in motion is divinized. Baal was viewed as this life force permeating nature. Baal was the chief god of the Canaanites. Just like science with a capital S uh, has become a god for many today, or nature with a capital N has become a god for many today, you can say that's just modern-day Baalism. They're really doing exactly what ancient worshipers of Baal and, of course, science properly carried out has its place. We're not anti-science. But we're anti-scientism. When science becomes a religion, a, 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 a final authority, that's a problem. When science and the nature that scientists claim to be studying is divinized, that's a problem. That's fatalism. See, there's really nothing new under the sun. We may give false gods different names today, but we have the same idols as the ancient people. And God still threatens judgment. Judgment will come upon idols and those who worship them. Idolatrous worlds will be swept away. Idolatrous social orders do not last because they cannot last. And any society given over to Baal worship, to nature worship, to scientism, modern day Baalism, that society cannot stand. Go on, look at verse 5. Verse 5 speaks of those who bow down on rooftops to the host of heaven. That is to say, they bow before sun, moon, and stars. They go up on the rooftops so they can be close to the, the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, and they worship them. Now, before we dismiss this as irrelevant to us today, consider how many Americans begin their day by consulting a horoscope. Astrology, worship of sun, moon, and stars, is still very much with us. Most major newspapers, I know they've gone online now, but most major newspapers still have horoscopes. And these things are not harmless. And the same kind of thing can manifest itself in different ways, not just looking at a horoscope, but believe in fate or some kind of impersonal higher power, like luck or chance or fortune, believing something like that controls our destiny and shapes our lives. That's a very common thing in our day, but that is idolatrous. It's just the kind of thing Zephaniah is talking about here. Syncretism is a problem that Zephaniah identifies. Syncretism is mixing the true faith with another religion. You say you're worshiping Yahweh, but really you fill the content of your faith with something that comes from another religion. Or you, you've combined the worship of Yahweh with the worship of another God. Verse 5 gives us an example of this those who swear by the Lord, so they swear by Yahweh, and yet they also swear by Milcom. That is to say, they blend the worship of the true God with the worship of an idol. They say they're worshiping Yahweh, but they combine that with beliefs or practices that come from another religion. Now, Milcom is also known as Molech. That's probably a more familiar name for this deity. Molech is the god people sacrifice children to, and the prophets deal with this again and again. They talk about the people who are offering their infants to Molech. So here you have people who say they worship the Lord, they swear by the true God, but they also worship Molech and sacrifice their children to him. Does anything like that happen in our day? Do we have people who are uh, what, what, what they might identify as pro-choice Christians? They say they're Christians, they swear by the Lord, but they also believe in sacrificing babies. They worship Molech. They have combined the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Molech. When I say that that term pro-choice Christian, you should be able to immediately identify the contradiction there. Just like when there are people who swear by the Lord and also swear by Molech, we should see there the contradiction. These are people who say they're worshiping Yahweh, but they also believe in sacrificing children to Molech. People today might say they worship Jesus, but they also offer children to Molech. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot mix the true faith with idolatry in that kind of way. It is a contradiction. I would say, you see, syncretism the the combining of swearing by the true God with some other religion. You see this in all kinds of ways in our day. You've got, I've used abortion as an example because that's the obvious one from the text, but you've got people who do the same thing with the God of LGBTQ. Let's face it, LGBTQ is a false religion in our day, an idolatrous religion, but you've got a lot of people who worship the God of LGBTQ who also want to swear by Yahweh, who call themselves Christians. You got people who are extreme nationalists who turn their politics into a religion. They exalt the nation beyond its rightful place. They turn the nation into an idol. In our land, this is what you might call americanism, the worship of America. They think the god that is has his name printed on our money, the god of american civil religion is the true god, and obviously that's not the case. That's an idol. But they do this in, in the name of Christianity. They're mixing religions. We've had a long history of national idolatry in America. Americans thinking of America as uh, the people of God and thinking of America as taking the place of ancient Israel and taking the place of the church as the vehicle through which God's purposes in history will be fulfilled. Patriotism is a good thing. Love of the fatherland, that's good. But it is possible to turn love of nation into an idol. To have a kind of idolatrous national pride. If you go back to American history, and you can find different people who would talk about the Constitution as a sort of sacred scriptures and who would virtually deify the nation, for turning the God of, of, of American civic religion who cannot be identified with the Trinity, obviously at this point in our history, into their God that they worship. That's a, that's a, that's a blending. That's a, that's a form of syncretism that ought not to be. Going on, verse 6 speaks of those who have turned their back on the Lord and do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is the sin of ignoring God's word, refusing to seek God's will and God's wisdom in his word. When the book of Deuteronomy was rediscovered in Josiah's day, in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, he tells his people, go and inquire of the Lord for me. So that same word inquire is used. And you know what he means by that? It's very clear in context in Second Chronicles. He means to go, read the word of God. Read the law. See what God says there. You seek God and inquire of him, and you turn to him by turning to his word, by going to the Scriptures. You turn your back on God, and you fail to inquire of the Lord when you ignore the scripture. Societies that ignore God's word will only hear a word of condemnation from the Lord because they won't hear from his, his word, they only hear a word of condemnation from the Lord. It's really interesting to think about uh, the, the Jews having lost the scriptures in the days leading up to Josiah's reign. You know, in America today, we might say, in large measure, we have lost God's work. Because for so many people in our culture, the Bible sits on the shelf collecting dust. It might as well have been lost We've got access to the Word, but we don't use it. It doesn't have authority in our lives. It does not guide our lives. We've turned our backs on God. We don't inquire of Him in His Word. We have our Bibles, but so many in America, including so many who claim to be Christians in our land, remain biblically illiterate. In turning our back on the Bible, we turn our back on God. Think about this. If you were to quote the Bible properly to make an argument for something in the public square today, what would happen? You would be told, oh, you can't use the Bible. You can't inquire of the Bible to tell us what we as a nation ought to do. We've turned our back on God. We've made emotion and experience our primary authorities, and that is why we have so much chaos in our land. Well-ordered families, well-ordered churches, well-ordered societies will seek God in his word. They will inquire of the Lord by going to the scriptures. Judgment comes upon those who have God's word, but ignore it instead of inquiring of the Lord by diligently studying and meditating meditating on his word. To ignore the Bible is to turn your back on God himself. Verse 8 says, the king's sons will be punished and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Here you have members of the royal house dressing in foreign attire. What does clothing have to do with judgment? What's wrong with getting your clothes from another nation? Probably most of us here today are wearing foreign attire that wasn't made in America. Well, that actually has nothing to do with what this is talking about. If you go back to Numbers 15, this is not well known, but it's a fact. It's there in Numbers 15. All Israelites were to wear a special uniform. They were to wear garments that had blue tassels on the corners. Those blue tassels served as a sign and memorial of God's covenant and God's commandments. Those blue tassels on the wings or corners of their garments indicated they were a heavenly and holy people. But now you've got members of the royal house. These are the elites in Judah. These are members of the ruling class. These are the one percenters. These are the influencers, and they have abandoned that dress God prescribed for them that would set them apart as a holy and a heavenly people, and instead they are dressing like foreigners. What is this in a word? It is worldliness. This is worldliness. The, the point is not just the clothes, it's what the clothes represent. They are adopting a way of life contrary to the covenant. They're more concerned about fitting in than being faithful. They want to look like the nation's about. So often this happens in the church want to fit in rather than be faithful. I would say this sounds like a lot of people today. Go on. Verse 9, it says they leap over a threshold. This is interesting. Some people think this is a reference to superstition. They leap over a threshold just like, you know, we might say don't step on a sidewalk crack uh, or or maybe have a lucky charm. It's kind of a superstitious thing. Superstitions are always, always, always pagan. Uh, We should not be governed by superstition. Uh, Others think this leaping over a threshold is a reference to coming into the temple, coming into the place of worship, and they are not worshiping God reverently. They're not coming into God's presence in reverent awe. They're leaping over the threshold. They're they're, they're treating God's presence as, as a light thing. They're being way too casual about how they come into the presence of God. That could certainly describe a lot of the church today. But I think something else is being referred to here, and I think the rest of verse 9 spells this out for us when it mentions violence and fraud. I think leaping over the threshold probably has to do with robbery, something like breaking and entering. It has to do with theft. This is a society that no longer respects life and property. This is a society that no longer respects private property rights. Uh, I saw where the store uh, Target... Uh, is uh, reporting over $400 million lost this year due to that. Now, some people might say, oh, well, you know, Target went woke, so they deserve it. It okay, well, doesn't matter. I mean, the reality is that is a sign. People are leaping over the threshold at Target stores and taking whatever they want. $400 million worth of stuff every year. Okay, hard to fathom that. What does that represent? The breakdown of law and order in a society. When laws are no longer obeyed, when laws are no longer enforced, a society falls apart. That society is in the process of being decreated. And that's why in this verse in Zephaniah, he ties this leaping over the, the, the threshold to violence and fraud. It has to do with deceit and propaganda and dishonesty. See, when laws are no longer enforced, when there's no longer respect for life and property, social trust collapses. I would say the sins Zephaniah is identifying in his day are essentially the same sins that dominate present-day America. What's happening in our society? We're losing the bonds of social life because respect for the lives and property of others is being diminished. Our cities just in the last few years are reporting record rates of violent crime, record rates of homicide in many American cities, record rates of death. What's happening? The very thing Zephaniah describes here. In fact, this really seems to be in Zephaniah uh, a form of class warfare where the poorer people are envying the rich and thinking they have a right to take whatever they want from the rich. Those who leap over the threshold, it says they fill the master's house with violence and fraud. They envy the masters. They envy those who are above them uh, on the socioeconomic scale. They envy their economic superiors, and so they think they can take what they want from them. Keep going. Verse 11 mentions the traders or the merchants, those who are greedy for silver, and so they will be cut off. Verse 18 mentions those who trust in wealth, they trust in wealth, but they will be saved by it. Verse 12 describes those who are complacent or indifferent to God. They don't really care whether God exists or not. They don't really care what God has to say. They don't care about God. It's not going to shape their lives. God may be there. They may say they believe in God, but God isn't real to them. He doesn't matter to them. They don't fear God. Again, that describes a lot of America. People who, oh, they're not atheists necessarily. They're just indifferent. No fear of God before their eyes. Now, I could keep going here. We could keep on with this, but I hope you get the picture. Zephaniah is speaking to people in the 600s BC, but he could just as easily be speaking to our time and place. Zephaniah may not have been written to us, but it was very much written for us because it describes the kind of society we live in. And here Zephaniah is giving all these reasons for the coming judgment in his day. But when you see those reasons, and you realize how so many of those same things are happening in our own day, you can't help but come to the realization, this must mean that the church in our day and our nation are ripe for judgment as well. This is a message tailor-made for us. See, we need to understand God not only judges at the end of history, and he not only judges individuals, God renders what you might say partial judgments or anticipatory judgments during history leading up to that final judgment. And God does not merely judge us as individuals, he also judges corporate entities. He not only judges individuals, he judges families and churches and even nations. And that's what you see being addressed in this prophecy. This prophecy addresses Judah and the priests within Judah, but it also addresses the Gentile nations. Everyone is accountable to God, and we are accountable to God in multiple ways and in multiple contexts and in multiple relationships. You're not only accountable to God as an individual, but as a member of your family, as a member of this church and the broader church, as an American citizen. We are accountable to God in a, in a multitude of ways. it may seem like this is a rather hopeless Message, But it's not. Zephaniah, like all the other prophets, gives hope to the people. And as we work our way through this book, we will see that hope uh, shine more and more brightly. Zephaniah makes it clear we all deserve judgment. We all deserve judgment. But when the day of wrath arrives, does that mean we are all doomed? Is it possible for the day of the Lord to be a day of deliverance instead of a day of doom? Is that possible? Well, if you go all the way to the very end of the book, into Zephaniah chapter 3, you find his prophecy ends with a beautiful crescendo of hope. A beautiful crescendo of mercy and grace and forgiveness and restoration and recreation. But even before you get to the end, and I don't want us to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but even before you get to the end of the book, we find that that cry of judgment and that cry of distress, you know, in chapter 3 it's going to give way to, to, to faithful singing. That cry of distress will give way to joyful singing. That's going to be the transition that takes place. But that transition is anticipated even earlier in the book. Before we even get there, we can see that there is a way of rescue, a way to escape this coming judgment. And it's really outlined for us here in chapter 2 in the first three verses. Zephaniah uses liturgical language. He's used liturgical language for the judgment. Now he will use liturgical language for the rescue. He calls on the people to gather. Earlier they were being gathered for judgment. They were being gathered up so they could be swept away. Now they're being gathered for worship. He tells them to gather themselves, to gather for worship. The word that's used here for gathering is a word that regularly describes worship services. God's people coming together for worship. It's the word that's used for the Feast of Ingathering, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's a really interesting point here because Zephaniah's judgment is not just for Judah, it's for the nations. The Feast of Ingathering was not just for Israel, it was for the nations. It was about the ingathering of the nations. During the Feast of Ingathering, the Israelite priest would sacrifice 70 bulls. 70 bulls would be offered for the 70 nations of the world. So the Feast of Tabernacles pointed to global salvation. It was for Israel, for Judah. It was also for the Gentiles. What is Zephaniah's message here? The whole world deserves judgment, but the whole world is being offered salvation. God so loved the world, that he sent his only begotten son into the world to bring salvation to all who believe in him. See, the world has the opportunity to be saved, to be rescued. If we will just gather to call upon the Lord, there is an opportunity to repent the, the, the window is not totally closed. The opportunity is still there to escape this coming judgment. So Zephaniah says, gather, gather before the decree, that is before this threat takes effect. Gather before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Josiah's reforms in his day were an opportunity for the people to escape the nation, to to escape the coming judgment. And that was a model for the other nations to escape God's coming judgment as well. It's a model for us if we want to escape the coming judgment. What did Josiah do? He led the people in repentance. Zephaniah is really calling the people to get on board with Josiah's reforms. What should they do? What will it look like? They should gather. They should gather and worship the Lord. They should gather and call upon the Lord. The judgment has already been described in liturgical terms. You go back to chapter 1, verse 8. The Lord says he has prepared the sacrifice. What is the sacrifice that's going to be offered? Well, the sacrifice is the people themselves. The, The people are going to be sacrificed. The Lord is going to sacrifice them in judgment. But now Zephaniah says there is another way. If they will gather and sacrifice themselves, the Lord will not sacrifice them. If they will gather and sacrifice their own pride, because that's what he calls them to, humility. He says, if you will humble yourself, what is humility? Humility is the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. That's what Zephaniah is calling them to. If they will humble themselves, as verse three says, if they will seek righteousness and humility, what will happen? They will be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. And instead of being exposed in the judgment, they will be sheltered when that judgment arrives. They need a hiding place. Judgment is coming. They they need a hiding place. They need a shelter from the coming storm. They will find it, Zephaniah says, in the Lord himself if they will humbly seek him. If they will seek him, they will find shelter. Remember, Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides or the Lord shelters. And of course, all of this is ultimately fulfilled in the gospel. This is what Zephaniah is pointing to. The greater Zephaniah who is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus is lifted up from the earth. On the cross, he is suspended between heaven and earth so that he might be a shield and a shelter, so he might become a hiding place for his people when wrath from heaven falls upon the earth. See, this is really what Jesus coming into the world is all about. Jesus brings all of this together on his cross. Jesus is your place of shelter. Jesus is your hiding place. Good Friday is the ultimate day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath, a day of darkness and gloom, darkness spread across the face of the earth as Jesus hung on the cross. It is the day of God's judgment. But where does that judgment fall?
1: Where does that judgment
0: land on Good Friday? It falls upon Jesus. He becomes the ultimate sacrifice. He bears the Lord's wrath so we can be sheltered from it. He was laid to waste so we can be rescued. He was swept away in the flood of judgment so that we can be rescued and removed. That's what the cross is all about. That's why Jesus came into this world. That's what Advent and Christmas are all about. Jesus coming into the world to become our hiding place. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. There it is. Jesus is the true and greater Zephaniah. The Lord's people find a hiding place. We find shelter. In Jesus himself, all who trust in Christ, all who worship Christ, find shelter in him. He's the greater Zephaniah, the true Zephaniah. So what should we do? We should follow Zephaniah's instructions. We should heed his warning. We should seek Christ and his righteousness. We should seek him in humility. We should humble ourselves before God. We should gather together like we're doing here this day, and we should humble ourselves before God, knowing as we do so, we will be hidden in Christ. Whenever God's judgment falls, whenever God's wrath falls, if we've cried out to Christ, we will be spared in Christ. You will be safe and secure. In Christ, you have nothing to fear. In Christ, you don't have to fear decreation. In Christ, you become a new creation. When God's wrath falls, he always distinguishes his own from those who are not his own. He did it in Noah's day. Noah's family was spared from the flood. He did it in the days of Pharaoh and Moses. The plagues landed on the Egyptians, but not on the Israelites. He did it again in 70 AD, where the disciples of Jesus escaped from the city of Jerusalem before it was consumed by the Romans. And the people there, the apostate Israelites, were slaughtered by the Roman armies. God hides his father. He does it again and again and again. He hides his people in the day of his wrath. And where does he hide them? He hides them in his son, and that is our hope. So here's what Advent is really all about. Don't just look at what our world has come to That's our temptation, really. Zephaniah is describing all these sins. We see correspondences in our own day. But don't just look at what our world has come to. Look at who has come into our world. That's what Advent is about. Jesus coming into this world, this broken, fallen world that deserves judgment. Advent and Christmas are all about God coming to us to save us from God's own wrath. God coming to save us from God's own judgment in Christ, his Son. That is our hope. That is our joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.